Well, this is certainly a distinct joy for us to be back with you all. And uh, as Dip Pastor or Elder Dave said, we've had the privilege of being with you all many times. And it is not a it is an event in the Matthew household when we're invited here. Because as you know, every time we're invited, we view you all as our family. And so we save up so that we can bring more of our family with us. And so when we were here in 2019, we brought all five of our biological children here to be with us. We had such a great time with you all. And uh, the last time when we came, we had just become foster parents. And we had Charity in our home, but she wasn't yet adopted. And uh, so she has had the privilege now to come with us as our daughters. We finished her adoption a couple years ago. And uh, we have two more we've adopted as well. We now, at our age, we're back to where we have young ones. We have a four-year-old and a two-year-old that are biological siblings. And so if, if the Lord Jesus Christ does not return and we have the opportunity to be back with you in future years, we look forward to introducing them to our Hawaii Kai family because we do love you all so dearly, and we count it a blessing and a joy to be with you every time we're able to come. If you could take your Bibles and turn with me this morning. I talked to Pastor Dan, and I said, Pastor Dan, I will preach on anything you want me to preach on. He says, well, why don't you just continue in Luke? And so we're going to continue in Luke chapter 9, right where Pastor Dan left off last week. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can take the Bible that's there in the chair in front of you. You'll find it on page 867 if you want to join us there. But let's read together about the transfiguration in Luke 9. Picking up at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake and they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray together for God to guide our minds and hearts now. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that you have perfectly preserved for us, Lord, through countless generations, through many centuries, so that we, Lord, your people could benefit from what you have kept and inspired. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds and hearts to understand and to obey. More than anything, Lord, let us be a people, lead us to be a people who stand in awe of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. You know, it is special to come to this text on Father's Day because this is one of those occasions during the earthly ministry of Christ when we have God the Father speaking audibly 
his approval of his beloved son during his earthly ministry. And the perspective I'm going to lead us in as we take a look at this text this morning is really for us to ask ourselves, are we as a people in awe of God? And I think I know, I think you all know, we all know together what it is to be in awe of something. You know, they're, they're such beautiful places just on this island. If you take the time to hike up to some of the higher points, even just on this side of the island, it's, 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 you're struck with awe as you look out at the beauty of the ocean and the beauty of the beaches and the sights that you can behold. If you've ever been up in an airplane and been able to behold an even larger view of things, it's, it's amazing. It's something that is, strikes you with awe. But what does it mean to be and to live in awe of Christ? Paul David Triff wrote a book called Awe. The subtitle of it is Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And he points out in that book that we, especially as Christians, as believers in Christ, we are made to be a people who live in awe. He said in that text, God created an awesome world and he intentionally loaded it with amazing things to leave you astounded. The carefully air-conditioned termite mound in Africa, the tart crunchiness of an apple, the explosion of thunder, the beauty of an orchid, the interdependent systems of the human body, the inexhaustible pounding of the ocean waves, and thousands of other created sights, sounds, touches, and tastes. God designed all of these to be awesome, and he intended you to be daily amazed because every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching, hungry heart. The other part of the problem we face, though, is that in our flesh, we are are what he calls awe amnesiacs. We can be struck by awe of something and yet very quickly forget. Let's walk through this text this morning and hopefully as we do so, recover what it means to be in awe of Christ. We pick up at verse 28 as we talk about the, the glory of the transfigured Christ here. That's my first point. Luke specifically mentions eight days here because he wants his readers to understand that the events that are following here are just about eight days from what he recorded in the previous passage. You remember the sermon from last week that in response to Peter's confession of his messianic identity, Christ began to speak to his disciples very intentionally about the road to the cross. He was now preparing his men to travel that path of suffering with him. And part of that preparation involved giving a few of them a vision of his divine glory. So out of the 12 disciples, he took Peter, John, and James with himself up to the top of a high mountain for a time of prayer. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we see Jesus kind of singling out an inner group from within the group. These men were closer to him than even the others. These men were clearly leaders, and they seemed to have a great level of intimacy with him. If you look at the parallel passage in Mark 5, Mark 5.37 shows us an earlier instance where these three men were specifically selected by Christ to accompany him when he went to heal a synagogue official's child. Later, they would also be the three that were chosen to accompany him a little bit further in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. 
And so keep in mind the identity of these three men. James would be the first of the 12 to be martyred. Peter and John would be the only two apostles from among the original 12 to write books of the New Testament. And so if we take all that into account, and we understand where we are in the life and, and ministry of Jesus, we see that this is, in a very, this is a very important event, a very central event, as Jesus is now on his way to the cross. If you think about just where this might have happened, historians and archaeologists have come to believe that the mountain where the transfiguration occurred was Mount Mirren. It was a mountain of about 3,900 feet high. It was the highest mountain in Israel, and it was right on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. And so these three disciples went with Jesus up to the top of this mountain for a time of prayer, and while there, they saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes. Now, what does that mean that he was transfigured? Well, the actual Greek word is the Greek word where we get our term metamorphosis. You know, when you think about a caterpillar wrapping himself in a cocoon and being there for a period of time and then breaking forth as a beautiful butterfly, that's what we describe as a metamorphosis. That's the term that transfigured represents. Jesus went through a change. A change that involved revealing the light of the glory of his presence in a way that had not been done during his earthly ministry. This glory of Christ is sometimes called the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus' face shone as bright as the sun. His garments became exceedingly white. Again, in Mark 9, it says his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Jesus, entire, his entire person literally radiated with the dazzling splendor of the Godhead, with the light of the glory that was his in his eminence before the incarnation. I guess the closest we could come to maybe understanding this is those painful moments, you know, when we're, when we're asked to look into the sun. Maybe somebody's trying to get a photo of us or we're somewhere beautiful or maybe we're down on the beach and we've just forgotten our sunglasses, right? And, and we make that mistake of glancing toward the sun and how that pierces our vision. We immediately have to turn away because of the brightness of it. The light of the glory of Christ is shining in such a way. It is, it, is, it is dazzling before these men. You know, we see, a, we see Jesus similarly described in this dazzling fashion at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle John says, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze bent when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That vision there at the beginning of the book of Revelation is Jesus. Jesus who is Literally, the light of the world. He himself told us that, didn't he? In John 8, 12, Jesus therefore spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus was transfigured. He was dazzling and resplendent in his glory before his men. 
And in that moment, he was also not alone. Look at who was with him. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appeared alongside him, and it says here in our text, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah came to encourage and support Jesus as his movement towards his death on the cross was becoming more deliberate. Again, the work of Christ that would take place at, the, at Golgotha was decreed by God in the covenant of redemption and eternity passed between the Godhead. Jesus came to earth for this purpose, a purpose that had been planned in eternity past. And yet we understand that as the perfect God-man, Jesus was fully God and fully man, he still needed encouragement and strengthening in his humanity. He needed encouragement from Moses and Elijah. Now, we ask the question, why these two men in particular, of all the other people that we have in the Old Testament, why is it these two that are sent to encourage him at this time? You could literally research this for a couple weeks, and you would find over a dozen different opinions as to why. I'm not going to go through all of those for you. I'm going to give you what I think are just the best ones. Of all the best explanations, I think these are the best. First, Moses. Moses was the great lawgiver. If Abraham was considered to be the father of the Israelite nation, Moses was considered to be the father of Israel's religious life. Right? Moses is the one who received the law of God on the mountain of Sinai and delivered it to the people. Moses was an Old Testament type of Christ in that he was God's anointed deliverer who rescued God's people out of their slavery. He served as their mediator on Mount Sinai, and then he delivered them to the promised land. And those are all generally aspects of what we see Christ ultimately fulfilling. As far as earthly instruments of God, again, Moses was pivotal in the Israelite understanding of who they were as a people of faith. And everything that Moses delivered to the people of Israel in terms of the law ultimately pointed to Christ. Jesus said in John 5, verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, then we go to Elijah. Why Elijah of all the other Old Testament prophets? Why him? There were many others, prophets before him and others after him. But Elijah's ministry as a prophet really had national prominence at a time when paganism and idolatry was rampant in Israel. He was incredibly courageous, and he worked greater miracles than any other Old Testament prophet. You remember facing down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You had the prophets of Baal calling upon their gods. Elijah stood alone, and he called down fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice and even vaporized the stones that the sacrifice was laid upon. And so, so Elijah as well was there because he represented the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was one of the most revered and romanticized prophets in Israel at that time. These two men together represent the law and the prophets. These two men together bore testimony to Christ's divine glory and his unique role as savior of men. And their presence pointed to Christ as the fulfillment of everything they stood for and labored for in their ministries during their time on earth. 
And so by Moses and Elijah being there with Christ, their presence pointed to him as the ultimate and most full revelation of God. They were there to bear witness to the primacy of the word made flesh and to encourage him on his path to the cross. Both of those men, if you think about it in their earthly ministry, they testified to the shadow that was yet to come. Christ actually being here was the substance of everything that God had promised. Well, that takes us to the disciples' reaction. My second point is the earnest desire of all true disciples. Look at how Peter reacts. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood, stood with him. And so here, Peter and James and John, you know, at different times they struggled. They were imperfect men, but there they were up on the mountain. Even though they had been heavy with sleep, they now were, were brought awake by this marvelous and dazzling sight that was before them. They awoke to see Jesus in his glorified state conversing with a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. And in this holy moment, Peter, like the ever eager schoolchild, was quick to blurt out what he thought was the best thing to happen, right? That should happen. Peter was so enraptured by the scene that he didn't want it to end. And so Moses and Elijah appeared here to encourage Christ on his road to the cross, but Peter thought they should all go ahead and stay right there in this glorious moment of transfiguration. Now, we tend to be kind of hard on Peter sometimes, especially, you know, when he's busy sticking his foot in his mouth or going back on something that he promised to do. But if we stop and think about it for a minute, if you or I were up on that mountain, we would want the same thing. Imagine being so struck by the awe of a glorified Christ with Moses and Elijah. We wouldn't want it to end either. We would want to stay there. We would want to say, let's live here and never let this moment end. We long for that day indeed, don't we, as Christians? Especially when we find life on this earth getting hard when we're struggling, when we're dealing with suffering and difficulty, we're facing financial troubles, we're facing marriage problems, we're struggling in our parenting, we're dealing with all different pressures that may weigh down on us from all different directions, from family and conflict to work and pressures and stress. One of the things we indeed long for is for the return of Christ, right? We long to be set free. We long for, for heaven to come. Indeed, if we, if we think about even the songs that we sing, even the songs that have been written and that we sing in the church, all represent our desire to be with Christ. Face to face with Christ my Savior is one of those older hymns. Face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Face to face we shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by. Or how about the, just the more simple song that's a little more current? I just want to be where you are. Dwelling daily in your presence, 
I don't want to worship from afar. Draw me near to where you are. I want to be where you are, dwelling in your presence, feasting at your table, surrounded by your glory. In your presence, that's where I want to be. If we were there with those disciples, we would want the same exact thing that Peter wants. So Peter was merely expressing the earnest desire of all of us. But do you know what the problem is? The problem is Peter wanted to dwell on the mountain of Christ's glory without going by way of the cross. He had heard what Jesus said about being rejected and suffering and death. And Peter was no doubt questioning why the cross of Christ was even necessary if Jesus was already able to be transfigured in the way he was before him in this moment. And so Peter's question is, why can't we all just stay on the mountain? Why can't all the nations just come here to Christ and honor him as the glorified Messiah of the Jewish people? Peter's thinking reflects just many errors. He failed to understand that Christ had come to redeem mankind by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. Peter was living in practical denial of what Jesus had explicitly revealed to him just eight days before about the necessity of suffering and death on a cross. Secondly, Peter was still holding on to traditional elements of, of Jewish ideology, that this idea that the Messiah was coming to be a king to free Israel from, from the Roman boot of oppression and establish them as a nation above others on earth. What Peter didn't understand is that there is no lasting glory. There is no true glory apart from the cross, apart from death. Philippians 1.29, Paul even wrote to us and said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There is no path to glory without suffering. And we're to understand, brothers and sisters, that our sufferings, our times of difficulty that we face on this earth are part of God's preparation for being in his glory for all eternity. I know that, again, going back to the things we all struggle with, the marriage and the parenting and the job and the stress and financial difficulties and all the different things we feel pulling at us and weighing us down, we're to understand and see all of those realities as directing us to our need for Christ, of leading us to dependence upon Christ, of understanding those things as sanctifying agents in our lives to prepare us for the glory of Christ in which we will one day dwell. Remember the truth of Romans 8, 28? It's a verse we quote often. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Because if we do, then we can thank him even for our sufferings. Because we know he is using those things for his glory. We can thank him for those trials and those difficulties and those challenges because they teach us to depend upon him. And there may be some of you here in this room who, who have been trying to live this life without any dependence upon Christ. 
Maybe you're wrestling with the idea of what it is to be a Christian. You know, maybe you're here just because a friend invited you, or maybe you're still trying to figure out what life is really supposed to be like and all about and how you get there. Please understand, the Bible teaches us very clearly that there is no life apart from Christ. What you're searching for will never be found. And if you insist on living this life according to your own ideas, doing everything on your own steam, one day you are going to stand before the judge of the universe and he is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And he will cast you from his presence for all eternity into hell. Jesus has come and died on the cross in the sinner's place, bearing the wrath of God that every sinner deserves. And he has conquered death by rising from the grave on the third day, achieving the promise of eternal life for everyone who believes in him. He is the only way of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. This very day, I plead with you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is our Lord, our Savior, our hope, our rest. That takes me to the final thing we want to see in this text this morning, and that's the Father's exaltation of his beloved Son. So as Peter was saying these things, as Peter was saying, let's live here, a cloud came over the mountain. And overshadowed them, and they were afraid. Verse 34 there. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God the Father stepped into this moment to clarify any, any misconception about Jesus with his own testimony of his son. And if you think about it, this is very reminiscent of Moses and what happened on Mount Sinai. You remember on Mount Sinai, God descended on that mountain in a cloud with thunder and lightning and fire. Now God descends in a cloud again, manifesting his veiled glory when appearing among men. And he spoke, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him, just like it is baptism. And this reminds us again of the special relationship between the, the Father and the Son. Jesus is God's chosen beloved Son. There is a deep, rich, and profound relationship here between the members of the Godhead. And this is one of the beauties as we see the, the Trinity and, and, and see and seek to understand what that is, that God is one and yet three. God the Father, God the, Spirit, God the Son, God the Spirit, they've existed as one being and perfectly loving community of three persons for all eternity. The Father loves the Son infinitely, perfectly, eternally. He delights and rejoices to behold his glory in the person of the Son. And that love and delight extend to the Son in his incarnation because by robing himself in humanity and undertaking the work of redemption, Christ was perfectly fulfilling the Father's plan. So God the Father here spoke to express his joy and his eternal love of his son. And that's a special message, isn't it? 
Jesus Christ alone embodied the absolute perfection that God required in his righteous law. Jesus was truly the culmination of everything that Moses and Elijah stood for. And thus, his person and his righteous character and his dedication to his Father's will was truly pleasing to God the Father. And so, the Father says, listen to him. That statement bears the force of a command, and it's aimed directly at Peter, James, and John, regardless of their own desires or misunderstandings, regardless of their own limitations or fears, they needed to listen to Christ. If Jesus said that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, then they had better believe him and not try to cut that part of the trip off. If Jesus told them to take up their cross and follow him, then they had better do it. If he told them that he would rise from the grave and later return to glory, then they had better count it so. With this short phrase, God the Father was giving them his own divine affirmation of everything Jesus had said. And how did these men respond? Well, again, if we go to a parallel passage in Matthew's account, it says they fell on their faces and they were much afraid. And if you think about it, that's where they should have gone in the first place. They should have assumed that position when they saw Jesus transfigured in that moment that his divine glory was revealed to them because that's a proper acknowledgement of the glory of God. Again, our God is a consuming fire, a consuming fire. He is perfectly and ultimately holy and we should live in awe of him. You know, in, in Alabama, when we have storms roll through, we have tornado sirens. I know here in Hawaii, you all have tsunami sirens, right? You have warnings that go off in case there's an earthquake somewhere in the Pacific Rim. And, and all we need to do is look back a few years and see the kind of damage that a tsunami can bring, right? You can pull up YouTube videos and others of, of when those tsunamis swept into Japan and other regions and just amazing how quickly and powerfully devastation wiped places on the coast of Japan clean. Think of how, more, how much more powerful God is than even a tsunami, a tornado, any other natural disaster we might think of. Think of how powerful he is when he literally could speak and the universe come into existence. God is worthy of our awe. And Christ is worthy of our awe. I want to go back and quote Paul Tripp again from his book, Only when awe of God rules your heart will you be able to keep the pleasures of the material world in their proper place. You see, God hasn't promised you a good job or great kids. He hasn't promised you an easy marriage and a comfortable place to live. He hasn't promised you physical health and a good church to attend. He hasn't promised you that you would experience affluence and be surrounded by things that would entertain you. What he has promised you is that he will complete the work begun in you. So how do we cultivate awe when we have grown so accustomed and comfortable with even stories like this. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we're, we're to continually be a people who come back to the word. We starve ourselves in our spiritual life when we are not a people of the book. 
when we are not regularly taking in and reading and studying Scripture. And so, come back to God's Word. And, and I would even encourage you, use your sanctified imagination as you read God's Word. When you're reading about David and ruling over Israel and fighting Goliath, put your imagination to work imagining what the Scripture describes. When we read about Christ, when we read about His coming again, Weigh that and consider that and pray that God would direct your mind and your heart to give you understanding of those things. So be a student of God's word and put yourself in a place where you, you see and understand what God has revealed. Then pray specifically that God would guard you from a spiritual hardness of heart and an apathy. You know, you know, y'all know this as well as I do. You know, you can wake up in the early in the morning with the best intention to have a quiet time. You, you get up a little early, your alarm goes off a little early, you take out your Bible, you start trying to read, and you're immediately nodding off because you're trying to, you know, you're falling back to sleep. And yet, if you also wake up early and take out your device and start scrolling through social media, you're wide awake. Why? Your flesh doesn't want you to read the Bible. It's going to labor against you to distract you, to cause you to be sleepy, to take you away from what is your greatest spiritual nourishment. But your flesh does want you to be distracted and drawn to the things of the world. And so it will keep you wide awake for that. Pray specifically that God would give you an appetite for things that only he can satisfy. Pray specifically that he will guard you from spiritual apathy and hardness of heart and that he will give you an awe for the things of God. And then I would just say, thirdly, bear out the combination of thankfulness and humility in your walk with Christ. You know, we can be so focused on the difficulties of life that it, it kind of ruins our heart and our attitude each and every day. But if we are intentional about being thankful. It's amazing how thankfulness lifts our eyes, lifts our hearts, helps us to focus on more intangible and eternal things. Bear out that combination of thankfulness and humility in your walk with Christ. Right now on Wednesday nights back at my church, I'm teaching through the book of Job on Wednesday evenings. It's the first time I've ever taught through that book all the way. And we're just uh, really in the early chapters. We're still in the first few chapters. But you know what's amazing is you consider the book of Job as a whole? Job lost everything. Everything. His wealth, his health, his children, all in just a span of a couple days. And he spends the entire book looking for answers. And he's got friends alongside him who aren't really a good help. But at the end of the book of Job, he gets a vision of God and awe of God as God speaks to him out of the whirlwind. He gets a vision of God that utterly transforms his heart. Pray for that kind of heart. Hopefully, not through that kind of suffering. And I would conclude this sermon by encouraging us to understand fathers on Father's Day this is one of the ways that we're called to shepherd our families. You talk about being in the word and, and being in the truth and being students of scripture. You talk about praying that God would guard us from apathy, guard us from complacency and fill us with an awe of him. You talk about humbly bearing out in obedience the combination of thankfulness and humility. 
This is one of the greatest ways we lead our families, that we shepherd those entrusted to us, that we speak encouraging words to our own children, preparing them for what lies ahead of them in terms of suffering. Follow the example of God the Father, and you'll never go wrong as an earthly father. When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all those things are added unto us. Our struggle is we seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, right? I mean, I have eight children. I think I have, God has given me eight children because I'm a man deeply in need of patience, right? And I find myself all the time, you know, if you would just do what I say, everything would be wonderful. And in those moments, I catch myself and I realize, you know what? I'm building Sean's kingdom. I'm not building Christ's kingdom. Fathers, let's take this as an encouragement to us today to be the men God has called us to be and how we shepherd and lead our families in truth and thankfulness and a proper awe of God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come before you just so thankful that you are a patient, loving Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have preserved this particular passage of Scripture for us, and you have helped us, Lord, to see and understand the awesomeness of Christ, the glory, the splendor of his person. And Lord, while we would want that glory without the suffering, you've also reminded us that there is no lasting glory apart from a cross. So let us not question. Let us shoulder in and let us be thankful for your grace that is so abundantly supplied to us, especially through our times of struggle. And as we navigate those times, Lord, in the strength of your spirit and by the truth of your word, make us more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.